So I had this dream last night. Yeah, what about? I was a superhero lawyer called the Deal Closer. Oh my. Yeah, and my superpower was closing deals and giving clients high value services in short time. Well, maybe you've been influenced by Deal Closer, the pod's new sponsor. Oh, right. I mean, it makes sense. Deal Closer does have a superpower vibe that helps lawyers close deals, bill, and collect faster. It's all coming back to me now. They offer document management, collaboration, e-signing, and really easy comparisons between versions. That's right. But to be clear, I do support your superhero aspirations. I mean, you're close already. And maybe while you get there, you can use Deal Closer. It's time I work with one of the fastest growing transaction management companies in North America. And if you visit cloud.dealcloser.com slash lawyerlife, you can get an extended free trial of 30 days and a 15% discount off a monthly or one-year subscription. That's cloud.dealcloser.com slash lawyerlife. Check it out today. Welcome to the Lawyer Life Podcast, where we seek to navigate our days with a little less stress and ideally a lot more fulfillment. In this season six, we focus on resetting our lawyer brains. On today's episode, we discuss robot lawyers. We ask whether lawyers can put their identity aside and still sustain a career in law. I'm Mike Anderson. And I'm Darlene Tonelli. I'm just smiling so much. We did a great intro time again. This is wonderful. Mm -hmm. We're on a roll, everybody. This, we might set a record. Um, Hi, Darlene. How are you? We are. And we also talk about it a lot more than we used to. (laughs) We're so pleased about it. One of the weird things about me, there are many, um, but I'm so pleased when things work perfectly at the time. I remember in law school, there was like one of those sessions that was like everything you need to know about X in 60 minutes. That was the name of the session. And my friends and I, maybe we were being like the bad kids in class, but we sat at the very back of the lecture hall. And when the instructor with our prof started speaking, we had a huge clock on our laptop and we pressed go. And (laughs) she was going through this whole thing. It was great. It was captivating. Like literally to the second, she said, thank you very much, everybody. 60 minutes spot on. And we could not handle it. It was like the best thing in the world. It was so <laughs> great. This so, is sincerely the most Mike Anderson of oh, all the Mike Anderson oh. stories you've ever told. So the, when we hit the intro, it's just a small <laughs> dose of that amazing feeling we got. When It's uh, good oh, though. Man, it was so good. It, it's very good. Yeah. And I do find that even with client work and things, if you say I need 15 minutes and you do 15 minutes, it's so rewarding both ways. You know, it's part of keeping your word. Yeah. I also, uh, probably one of my best talents is like being away from a clock for a long time and being like, I bet you it's 422 in the afternoon. And it's, <laughs> it's usually, my wife gets so mad <laughs> because I'm usually like within a minute or two. So anyway, I guess I have a lot of time related passion mm-hmm. interests. Yep. Who cares about this Seems. though? <laughs> uh, what's going on? Tell me about you, Darlene. <laughs> I'm good, as always, excited for Friday, Um, excited for this recording and this topic. I'm pumped about this topic. So season six, uh, I've said it, I've said it again, we are focusing on, you know, um, preconceived notions, narratives, things in the profession that we take for granted. And actually, when we dive into them, uh, we might learn that the opposite is true. 
Uh, and today is a, uh, we've had some great uh, discussions already that have been challenging and, and fascinating to us. And I think stuff that we've been thinking through even after the episodes. Uh, and today is going to be a, a great one too. And not only do we have a fantastic topic, uh, which is uh, whether or not lawyers actually need to acknowledge their own identities uh, as they practice. Um, but we also have, you know, the Lawyer Life podcast guest, the most reoccurring guest we've had, the member of the family, the Sarah Robertson on the podcast today. That's very exciting. So why don't we kick it off? Um, I will introduce uh, Sarah, and then we'll start the conversation with our resident uh, expert of of so many things, uh, including how our brain works. Okay, so uh, after experiencing severe burnout in her former career in management at one of Canada's 50 best managed companies, Sarah went on a mission to build a new life for herself and found a calling in teaching others that there is a better way to live and work. In 2015, she founded Limehorse, a professional education company with a focus on the legal profession, offering online and in-person training in mindfulness, emotional intelligence, organizational development, and peak performance. She is a faculty and advisory board member at the University of Toronto's AMM Mind Program, co-chair of the Ontario Chapter and CLE Planning Task Force, member with Mindfulness in Law Society, and performance specialist at Mindful Gateway Consulting. She is a contributor on Thrive... Global's special section on overcoming lawyer burnout. Sarah is passionate about helping professionals build resilience and cultivate purposeful work. She has worked in diverse environments such as academic, corporate, and professional sports as a certified flow coach. Oh, I love it. I love it. I just want to talk to her about flow all the time. Uh, She has developed and delivered training for the Canadian Olympic and Paralympic teams, the Toronto Maple Leafs Development Camp, and the Toronto Marlies. Sarah is a master's candidate in applied neuroscience at King's College London and a research assistant with the Regulatory and Effective Dynamics, RAD Lab, at the University of Toronto. She is also a dear friend of ours, Sarah Robertson. Hello, friends. Hello. Hello. Welcome back. What a bio, Sarah. I feel like every time I'm having a day where I'm just like, oh, I did nothing, I should just go back to listening to Mike read my bio. Just call me. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> just call me. I've done stuff. Yeah. I will call your phone and just leave a voicemail of your bio and then just save it and, and recall it whenever you. I think me. that sounds like a great idea. Okay. Deal. It's quite the bio. And I mean, we always call on you because you have such a nuanced view. And really, your bio explains why. You look at things from a bunch of different angles. You've got the mindfulness angle, neuroscience, business experience understand lawyers. So we're going to, as discussed, talk about pretty deep issue today. And Mm -hmm. honestly, Mike and I did not feel comfortable talking about it without bringing you onto the podcast. We're like, someone is missing. We have to bring Sarah. We got to get this done. So thank you for coming. It's a big topic. I I think we're uh, hopefully going to go on a little bit of a a journey through trying to understand how how this may apply to the legal profession and why, why people should care about it. Yeah. So let's take our, our you know, dip our toe in the water here, Darlene, to start, you and I. We're talking about robot lawyers and whether lawyers can put their identity aside and still manage to sustain a successful, fulfilling career. So to start, um, you and I, uh, practicing lawyers, have had times uh, in which we have been challenged to do so, right? To like, to, you know, given a file, given a matter, um, and, and have to think, you know, is this, does this align with who I am, my, 
morals, my values, my, you know, history, my own story, my, you know, all these things that make up who we are, our souls, you know, these sort of things. Um, you know, do you want to speak generally how that feels and what that does to somebody? It's two-sided. So first of all, when I went into law school, I really feel, and we've spoken about this on other podcasts, most notably with Cat Moon from Vanderbilt University. We spoke about this thing that happens in law school where this moral inquiry is kind of stripped out of law. I don't think that we ever really deeply inquired about what was, what side of the issue a person would be on, or how would you deal with it if you were on the wrong side of something when you can't just get off of it. So I think there was sort of this illusion that you'd get to choose your cases, which is not the, not a fact for most lawyers. Then there was a second layer where it was, I'm an advocate now after these three years, and of course, I'll just take it on with no feelings. And I did come uh, right into contact with that early in my career, I think luckily, honestly, because one of the first big files that I was on, I had actually asked in the department to not work on a particular type of file, because I knew it was not my thing. And it happened that, you know, the work came and there was no one else to work on it and I had to do it. And I was on it for years, years. And I learned from that experience that it did matter to me, that I was not a feelingless, empathyless uh, advocate, <laughs> and that my principles remained intact. So I think that that was the other shock to me, which was you can be, you know, doing your best work, winning, and not feeling good about what you're doing from a principled perspective. Mm -hmm. So that I did have that experience. And it was very personal to me. I think many other people would not have that experience. It wasn't it wasn't a truly morally objectionable file like uh, to everyone. I think some people would find it that way and some wouldn't. So what do you have a similar experience or does that resonate at all? Yeah, totally. It, I, I, mine's actually so story is so early in my you know days. I wasn't even a lawyer yet. I was still uh, a student and I was just asked to uh, contribute research to a certain file that I just really felt like, you know, it was basically, it was a David and Goliath type story, and we were advocating for Goliath. And I just kind of felt like I just didn't, I put my, I just thought about the David in this situation and that person's life and how it was going to be impacted by uh, a victory on our side, which, uh, you know, obviously I worked toward with the research. But I, I just was like, I don't want to be in a position where I'm handed this sort of stuff and know that I am making an impact on an individual's life that I just don't want to happen. Like, I didn't want to be part of that team to, uh, pushing for that thing. Um, so I, I felt this, you know, and, and it shaped early, you know, the way I saw myself building a career. So that's what led me, I think, to make a bit of a pivot. I think that this episode follows very naturally on our prior episode about hacking it and toughing it out, because I really think that so much of what we dealt with in that episode was about, you know, what does it mean to hack it? And I think one of the very, like, not often discussed things is what is the long-term effect of working on the opposite side of your morals and principles? And that is what we need Sarah Robertson <laughs> to tell us about and to help us out with. Yeah, and so just before we, I you know, deliver our uh, ourselves over to Sarah, I, <laughs> when we talk about the the robot lawyer and the and the you know 
narrative that's built in law school and in firms and otherwise it's that you know lawyers should have the ability it's a you know a key ability to to sh- you know not get involved emotionally um you know let this right. sort of thing pass through you almost like you know this is someone else's problem your job is to advocate but um mm-hmm. you're just kind of this vessel it shouldn't you're not in, it's not you you're not involved so it shouldn't you know really cause a weight to be on your shoulders it shouldn't affect your life right because you, you're just going in and there's a problem on a piece of paper you know or there's this thing that has to be solved in court and you are just going to apply your skill set and then get out and it's done you know um and so sarah <laughs> what is your view on that on on the, uh, is that possible is that achievable is it problematic um Oh, geez. I mean, this is such a big topic. So as we're getting into it, I mean, one thing that I want to be clear about is when we're talking and this is going to be talking a little bit in generalization. So, I mean, it might apply, like you guys had had discussed, like some lawyers, it's hard to sort of say, you know, who and under what circumstances. But in general, when you're speaking about having this ability to be able to kind of have this detachment from your actions, say, in your career or at work or in any other domain in your life and expecting that you're going to be able to sort of separate your life domains. I mean, all the evidence points toward that not being achievable. Um, For a period of time, you might be able to try and function that way. But what it it really ends up leading to is uh, creating a... Um, a situation that leads to like a cognitive dissonance. So where your actions are out of alignment with um, your beliefs, morals, values, um, cognitive dissonance, for anyone who's not familiar with it, was um, sort of uh, proposed by a researcher named Leon uh, Fessinger. So basically what he says is that when we're in a state where we're trying to, where our actions are not in alignment with our beliefs or morals or values or basically we're you know we're not uh, doing what we said we were going to do you know what occurs is that it creates a type of psychological distress and because our our brains want to be integrated like we don't Mm. like separation don't like ambiguity and it creates this psychological distress in the sense that there has to be some sort of mental effort that goes towards reaching, going from this dissonance to a state of consonance. And in all of the research that's been done, at least by Festinger and his uh, his associates, was that this leads to having to have some forms of either rationalization, effort justification, avoidance, or denial, and that this actual process of bringing yourself back into consonance, it, it almost creates a similar to what you would see in a bit like a trauma response like the amount of psychological distress that occurs in sort of reconciling these opposing factors in life particularly over the long term um, has has a similar effect to what we're seeing like other types of of long-term chronic stress which um, which would explain you know some of the contribution probably to the you know negative mental health outcomes that we uh, we see in the legal profession talk about cognitive dissonance, the pool of lawyers who enter law school, you know, certainly a good chunk of those people are quite, are people with a strong sense of justice, or people who are going to law school to make change or to, um, you know, make a difference, really, Mike and I have spoken about that a lot on this podcast. And when you leave after three years, you're not, most are not doing that or, you know, not as many as came in to do it, let's put it that way. 
And then you take this pool of people who have this strong sense of justice and put them into an environment where that's not mm -hmm. really helpful <laughs> based on what you're told in a lot of corporate law environments anyway, uh, certainly could be if you're practicing social justice law. But even, I, I don't think any law area is immune. Do you, Mike? Like, is there, can you get a, well, I don't know. What do you think? I mean, I might surprise you, but I have not practiced every single area of law. Uh, <laughs> so I don't know. But uh, I think that um, these sort of things come up even in places where you don't anticipate them to. Or, right. or well, and what you're describing, Sarah, this idea of cognitive dissonance, if it's causing almost like a PTSD uh, stress reaction in the body, and that's happening over and over and over, it's interesting to me, like, have, have, has there been any research on cognitive dissonance in lawyers as part of the mental health challenges we face in this profession? There's not a lot that is that I've, that I've been able to, f to find that's been published. Um, there were a few kind of areas I found that touched on a few people maybe talking about this conversation, but the majority of the research that's in this area um, is tends to, to be a bit more directed towards um, military personnel or healthcare is, is more in those areas. And then sort of says, oh, well this, you know, this could apply to other professions like, you know, law is one of them that has been that has been brought up. But in general, I think the the sentiment is that if we're talking about any anything that could go under the category of being like a public service prof uh, profession that provides some sort of public service, that it might be susceptible to um, to this type of of scenario. I'm curious, Sarah. Like, uh, I imagine if you if we speak to lawyers and we talk to them about like, you know, how do you deal with a, a, a tough file, a file, you know, that isn't ideal for you. And also, you know, do you, you live your life with your family and so on? A lot of them might talk about how they can compartmentalize, right? And that compartmentalization is actually a skill, right? Oh, well, I just like can put that aside. That is work. Um, and, and believe that that is something that actually is positive and helps. Um, is, is, in your view, is that true? Is that just like a fancy positive spin brand spin on cognitive dissonance or is there something there there are a number of different um factors that that could that could contribute to something like this mental health uh outcomes or, or um, issues tend to be kind of heterogeneous in nature meaning that they have a lot of different potential causes and it's hard to say to some degree like how much of it's endogenous meaning it's like internal to the individual and how much of it's the environment so it's the part that's hard to answer that question mike is that it kind of could say like it depends on the situation and it depends on the lawyer it seems that the you know lawyers tend to have high rates of what would be called neuroticism on personality traits um, that tends to express itself as you know higher levels of anxiety, uh, rumination, self-consciousness, risk aversion, perfectionism, and that the individuals that do score higher on those levels of neuroticism are more susceptible to. Um, these sorts of kind of cognitive or internal conflicts and that that expresses tends to express itself in um, sort of avoidance coping mechanisms. So there's actually some interesting mm. research that suggests that 
these avoidant behaviors could, you know, lead to higher levels of say like alcohol or other substance abuse. So I also kind of always question too, when someone says like, oh, I'm really good at com- compartmentalizing, like how honest they're being about that as well. Mm-hmm. What their family might say <clears throat> about that as well. Mm-hmm. The impetus in part for this podcast came from a newspaper article that I saw, which I can't remember where it was, but it included this term moral injury. And moral injury in that context was speaking about healthcare workers and describing basically how there's a type of trauma that is caused to healthcare workers when they know what is right for a patient, but they can't do it for whatever reason, because it's institutional constraints, cost, etc, access. So they have to watch someone not get what they need because of these factors and it causes this trauma and I looked at it and I thought well that's interesting I think that there's a form of that in law that I I think we should talk about and then as I got into it and I'll just I'll share the definition and then I'll kind of give a few examples that we can talk about so moral injury refers to it this is from Wikipedia so I didn't go deep on this for the pod and we are not experts on this topic but we're introducing it basically today, or I'm not an expert. So moral injury refers to an injury to an individual's moral conscience and values resulting from an act of perceived moral transgression, which produces profound emotional guilt and shame. And in some cases, also a sense of betrayal, anger and profound moral disorientation. And then there are a few extra layers to it. There's moral distress, there's moral injury, there is um, like there are all kinds of different things, but basically it's sort of betraying your own sense of what's right in the context of your job. So as Sarah said, it comes up in the military, it comes up in healthcare, it comes up in these places where you are facing these sort of big life and death decisions. And I think in law, perhaps it's not as obvious because we are not first responders, we are not doing life and death, we're not, you know, it's just not at that level. But when I read about it, I thought, I think that that goes on in law, and I don't think we talk about it enough. So is this a form of cognitive dissonance? Is it something additional to that, Sarah? Um, Yeah, so my understanding is that it is that they are related, like there's the moral injury then leads to a cognitive having like a state of cognitive dissonance occur like whether it's a moral or ethical dissonance so basically you're behaving in in a way that is in contrast with um your again your beliefs morals or values and as you had mentioned it's showing that this is leading to um you know feelings of shame guilt anxiety increased risk of suicide self-handicapping behaviors and um and it seems that I mean, the moral injury is sort of this sense of having perpetrated, rather whether it's like directly or indirectly or learning after the fact that you were involved in something that maybe was Mm. in contrast with your beliefs and then not having a path to remediation for that. Um, So it's sort of you're sitting here with this thing that has, you know, violated your understanding of, you know, how you maybe understand the world or your identity or your place in it and then it it's very destabilizing as you know our identity is is an integral part of you know how we manage and make meaning um and so you know having something that sort of puts us in a place that is is in conflict with that um can be very distressing and then in the in the doctor cons- context, the the thing that they were talking about, which really spoke to me 
for lawyers was also this idea that they get caught in these double and triple binds that, that they said between their obligations professionally, their own student debt, the requirements mm-hmm. for patient load through the hospital, a number of procedures performed which aren't optimal. So it said, and this is a quote, often physicians are trained to the gold standard but due to the institutional double binds, can't actually execute best-in-class treatment. I think that's another layer to this with lawyers. You know, mm-hmm. you, you're trained to be the best, can't make a mistake, have to be doing everything at this A-plus level, but also you have to be on seven deals at once or whatever. And you know, you know, you know you're not doing your best on all of them. So these are, these are big issues, I think. And I think the, the question for me is, twofold. Why don't we talk about that more? Do we know? Do we have a sense or a a guess? I have a guess. Um, And so what came up for me when thinking like, oh, you know, why is why is this? This seems kind of obvious. And yet it's not talked about. And, and, you know, you and I had, had sort of explored saying like, oh, well, you know, why, why isn't this talked about when so many people seem to have this shared experience? And I think some of it probably has to do with the shame. Hmm. Um, If you're familiar with any of Brene Brown's work, and she talks about, who's a shame researcher, and I mean, she's quite popular. So I'm hoping that that a number of people will have had some exposure to her. But she talks about how you know, shame sort of needs to live in the shadows. Hmm. Um, and that part of the reason why that happens is that it, it be, it's part of a survival mechanism where there's a sense that, you know, if you're um, acknowledging or admitting to these transgressions, that that would maybe that you're bad or that like inherently um, unacceptable and that there's probably some some sense of a evolutionary protection mechanism where it's like, well, oh, I don't, I can't share this with my larger community because people can't know what I've done. Um, and that, that probably contributes to my sense is that, you know, there's bringing these things out into, into the light takes some, some vulnerability, um, some self-acceptance and that uh, it's sort of in a place more where, where this, in order to be a lawyer, maybe you have to have no scruples or you have to sort of give up your sense of morality and that that's like a topic that's kind of better, feels like it, like it, it's better left in the shadows, but ends up really just festering there. If that, uh, that makes sense. Yeah. I, I, I love that, Sarah. And I think that as well, it, for a lot of folks, it's probably like, what's the point in me? Like, bringing this up Mm. like my career is built in a way where this is just my practice you know like a lot I'm sure that many folks feel like well I'm an expert in x and that's what they come to me for and at this point in my career like that's just who I like that's that's how I built this thing and you know I'm just gonna you know grin and bear it uh and, and get through it and and in the end you know what it's probably not so bad and you and you're probably rationalizing it uh, and so on. I, I think that the maybe one thing that we could get out of this today is that like, even if that's true, like even if your practice isn't a place like that, or you don't have control over your files, um, the profession uh, would benefit greatly from admitting that this is, uh, that this affects lawyers. And in fact, like 
uh, on the front end, maybe getting lawyers ready for that and giving them tools to deal with it, right? And actually educating folks on what's happening and how you can, um, you know, deal with these sort of feelings and issues if, the, if you encounter them. Yes. And, you know, as you were talking, I'm realizing, you know, right now there's a big drive, which I'm a massive proponent of, towards improving emotional intelligence in the law. And a big portion of emotional intelligence is empathy, right? Mm -hmm. And understanding what putting yourself in someone else's shoes, understanding how people are feeling, but empathy is a muscle. And I think Mm -hmm. that if you get used to shutting it down all the time, or just sort of stopping uh, looking at people and seeing them for who they really are just to get through the day, you cannot exercise high levels of EQ and shut yourself down all the time, right, on the feeling side. So there was a TED talk that was really great that I was uh, watching, and in it, they're speaking again about health professionals, but they say that doctors go in, or healthcare professionals more broadly than doctors, go into the profession with a higher than normal degree of empathy And very quickly, the empathy falls off a cliff, and they actually end up with lower empathy. But that is just the way that the training teaches them. And it's not clear yet that that's the best thing for outcomes or patients, Mm -hmm. right? And that's, I think, what we need to talk about in law, which is, okay, so there are a number now of competing irons in the fire. So once we move away from we're all automatons, we just have to power through, we got to tough it out, we got to no crying in the law you know, (laughs) no feelings, doesn't matter what side you're on, get in there and make your case. I think that that is one way to practice. Doesn't work for everyone. I think that's a fact that we can deal with. Then the question is, if it doesn't work for you, does that mean you can't practice law? I think the answer to that is no. And I think there can be better client and lawyer outcomes if we equip people properly (laughs) to be empathetic advocates to understand you need empathy you need empathy to understand what the other side needs to close something properly to settle something to do you know to make the right argument that the judge needs like empathy is not something you can just you know through 20 years of shutting feelings down get rid of and still be at the top of your game so i you know we do need to talk about it and i think we need to to mike's point you know start training people early Start talking about it. Don't be afraid of it. Sarah, good point about things being in the shadows. I think there is a reticence to talk about it. You need an adversarial system. You need an advocate on both sides. Like these things are true the way that the structure is. Mm-hmm. Um, it's the same about negotiating an important deal or whatever. I think that what um, what would be nice if, if we had like another layer on that to say, and if you're on, you know, the side um, that, you know, deep down, you might not necessarily align with, here is how that's going to feel. Here are the impacts. And here are some tools, you know, to deal with, with those things. Um, I I think as well, like some folks might say, ah, whatever, like I, you know, I'm fine where I'm at, you know, and I'm able to to deal with it. But for me, it just kind of feels like everything um, builds, right? So if you're just burying stuff over and over and over again, at some point, it's going to manifest itself in some way. And if we're trying to champion lawyers to be fulfilled and have long careers, one thing that will be important is like dealing with this major issue that's in your practice routinely, like to just ignore it feels like, um, 
frankly a lost opportunity and also you know that thing as uh, sarah used the perfect word can fester right it seems you know maybe it's just like a small cut but if you ignore the small cut it can fester become infected and then you're out you know sooner than you otherwise would be from the profession I, I, yeah so i'm super glad darlene that you brought this up today and Sarah, your your expertise is just like the best. I just wish we could talk all the time. Uh, <laughs> um, so <laughs> it's true. We did. We covered a lot. Yeah, covered a lot of ground. Yeah. It's a lot to think about. I don't think this can be our last episode on it. I think this is really just a scratching the surface of, you know, put the question out there, yeah. learn a little bit, and think about it. I think if there's anything like I wanted to say is like a last comment would be. If you, you know, if you're in a position in your career where you feel like you need to sell your soul in order to do your job, that that's, or that that's kind of a bit of, that's like a canary in the coal mine situation as far as I'm concerned. Hmm. Yeah. Well, and it's actually quoted in some of this literature that the, the remedy for, for example, military personnel who come back from war zones is a soul repair. That's actually how they, mm-hmm. how they uh, characterize it. So we do use the phrase soul crushing uh, a fair bit in law. I mean, it's we just leave them about. crushed. <laughs> we just leave them crushed. Yeah. And nobody ever says like, hey, how's your how's your soul doing over there? Are you good? Um, that's not a question that we ask. And when we're talking about we ask, it's like within the profession. Many of us leave or many lawyers leave the profession uh, entirely without that question ever being asked and with the individual being the bearer of this burden thinking, oh, I didn't make it, you know, but it's like, well, maybe it's, there's a systemic problem too. Lots to think about. So I think to, yeah, for, for the purposes of the t- today's conversation and wrapping it up a bit, I think that, you know, what we have seen through what Sarah's delivered and what Darlene's brought to the table is if you, if we look at the question, can a lawyer take themselves out of the, their work? Can they just remove their morals and principles and values uh, and just be the advocate that we're told to be at, you know, in law school at the beginning? Is that possible? Um, for, for many, it's likely not. Um, and, in, and maybe to, you know, always turning, resetting our lawyer brains, turning the profession upside down a bit here in this season. Um, I think the thing that we've learned, or at least that I've learned today, is that acknowledging how difficult it can be to take on another person's problem when you're fighting for a solution that you might not inherently believe in. Uh, and it, it, that's a hard thing. And if you're doing it, uh, acknowledging that and starting to uh, find ways to deal with it will be imperative to uh, sustaining to, to sustaining your career and, and, and uh, hopefully becoming fulfillment in some way. Um, Sarah, thank you again. Are you going to stay on for our goods and gripes today? I am. Okay, <laughs> perfect. Okay, so we'll be right back right. with our goods and grapes. The Lawyer Life Podcast is brought to you by Interalia Law. Interalia lawyers have big firm training, in-house experience, and a wide range of expertise in technology, media, and entertainment. Our advice is business-focused, speedy, and practical. To learn more, visit interalialaw.com. That's I-N-T-E-R-A-L-I-A-Law.com. And we are back with our goods and gripes. Goods are things we want to promote and support, and gripes are things that annoy us. 
Um, Darlene, do you want to start? Me? Okay. Guess what? What? Good. I have discovered a Netflix show that I think is really funny. <laughs> All on my own. Nobody told okay. me. Oh, that's not true. I, I mentioned I was thinking about watching it, and two of my good girlfriends who are very funny said that I would enjoy it. I'm watching Grace and Frankie on Netflix. Have you guys watched this show or heard of it? My mom is a big fan. Yeah, it's- Your mom! <laughs> oh! Kill me now. My burn. My age. Oh. But anyway, that's part of my good, which is actually that it is a... Uh, Yes, I feel middle-aged when I watch it, 100%, check. But I also think it's so great, two things. One, it's the story of, like, real story about women of a certain age, in this case, significantly older than me, but they're, you know, um, I really relate to them. I love Lily Tomlin. I have loved Lily Tomlin since, like, the 70s, and she, or 80s, I guess. She's amazing. Such a good show. And then the other thing is, it's interesting as an entertainment person or media lawyer, The Golden Girls was similarly an awesome show. And there's never been another gap. Like this this show apparently has been on Netflix for seven seasons, which is the longest running Netflix created show. So it shows that there's a real demand for real stories about older women in entertainment. And yet they only come along every, you know, couple of decades, these shows. So Anyway, you'll notice my productivity is slightly lower over the past couple of weeks because I'm watching this show. Anyway, that's my good. Anyway, how about you, Sarah? Do you want to go next? Sure. Just on that note, did you know that Betty White was originally cast to play Blanche? Oh. No. Yeah. Really? That would have been a very different show. She's so good. Wouldn't it? Oh, she's my favorite. Um yeah, so I'm going to be on nostalgia for shows as well, for my good. Um, I think, yeah, with the pandemic, everybody's been watching watching more Netflix. Um, but I decided I wanted to go in and watch some, like, old comedies. And uh, this one's a little bit lawyer-related, but I watched My Cousin Vinny. Yep. Right. Um, the other, yeah, and I hadn't seen it in forever. And I got it to, I mean, for all of the... Um, kind of exaggerated stereotypes that that movie has. Um, uh, Mar- Marissa Tomei and Joe Pesci's outfits mm. are just, <laughs> that's worth watching it for. <laughs> so if you want a good laugh, go watch My Cousin Vinny. That's that's what I got yeah. for my good for this week. Well, that's okay, great. next on my list. My good is VHS related as well. I just like, shout out to my dad back in the day and probably, I guess, maybe not great uh, as a... Uh, as a lawyer who does a lot of copyright work, but he, this is like before, you know, DVD players and cars or any way to watch a movie in a car. What my dad would do on a, before we went on a road trip, like we drove down to Florida or something, he would play a movie on our television, like Lion King or something, let's say, and then set up the camcorder in front (laughs) to film the television. So that when we were in the car, my sister and I on the tiny camcorder screen, could watch the movie wow. and listen to it. And just, That's amazing. Yeah. Isn't that like, a, Way to go, I Dad. know, a big, brilliant hack. And at the time, I just, you know, as a kid, you don't 
look at something like that and be like, that is three layers of genius going on there. But now as a dad who relies very much on the uh, DVD players in the back of our headrests uh, in our vehicle, uh, just like, I get it. I get the motivation. This, like, I understand why you would be so driven to like, I got to entertain these kids in this car. Um, but he really found a great way to do it. And uh, I think it's wonderful. Yeah. That is amazing. And yeah. I've never heard of anyone mentioning that in any of the copyright uh, government related <laughs> still, sessions. It just changed the medium, to... right? It's still personal use. We weren't out <laughs> shelling it on the street. Uh, but yeah, there we go. Yeah, it would. I don't think that was allowed back in the time when he would have been doing it. But yeah. anyway, he's yes, a, he's all a good. renegade. Very funny. He's on the run. Very funny. Yeah. He's on the run. <laughs> well, he will be now yeah, after be you've now. outed him on, the con- on this podcast. Yeah, exactly. Oh my gosh. Cool. Anyway, so lovely to chat with you both. This is to be continued, I think. I think this is just the start of, you know, what we're trying to do is really get to the bottom of how do we fix some of these problems instead of just talking about them year after year and being like, oh, well, lawyers work long hours and are stressed and addicted and, you know, suicidal. So I'm, I'm happy to get, I don't know, get the conversation going. That's all. Thank you, Sarah, as always. Thanks, guys. Thank you, Sarah. Okay. Um, well, until next time, we will talk soon. Talk soon. That's it for this week's episode of LLP. Thanks to Interalia Law for presenting the podcast and to Nick Fowler for composing and performing our music. See our show notes for his website. Don't forget, we love feedback. Please comment in the review section or subscribe or like. We'd appreciate it greatly. That's it. Talk soon. Thank you.